welcome welcome to the council connection i'm your host baby and vixen on this fresh episode we are back after a couple weeks off we have part two of our conversation with john brian and steve and we're going into identity and self-care and a whole lot of things we're going into you know how we do we start off on one topic and branches off to a whole bunch of other stuff we're also going to discuss our housekeeper items per usual and my final thought on something that we'll figure it out when we get there this is part of the show i said let's go And welcome to the Council's Connection. I am your host, Fabian Vixen. We have my guys with me uh, back again for part two of our conversation. We started last, but we have Ryan Coleman, 2019 School Council of the Year from Illinois. Oh, look at that. You got, you got right. my year and you uh, got my stay. Uh, okay, I see uh, you. Uh-huh. I see you. Uh-huh. Did you read that much off of your notes? And now it's <laughs> no, no. Google Maps and everything. No, I made sure I got him in first so I wouldn't get it wrong. Hey, uh-huh. hey. Guess they, hey. guess, guess they woke from, Pils- from Pennsylvania. That is the right state. That's the right state. We have the uh, Pennsylvania School Council Association president for this year, 2021, Steve Sharp, friend of the show, custom council friend. How you doing, Steve? Bam, bam, bam. And we're going to get John Nawasu on when he pops on. He's uh, he's on assignment. That's, yes. was, that's, that's, that's all we want to say. In the field. He's in the field. Last month, we. John, mark yourself safe. <laughs> <laughs> truly, truly. <laughs> so we're going to start this conversation with uh, what we started talking about last month with the identity. And that's kind of a series I've been going on for the last few podcasts. And mm-hmm. and our identity as black male school counselors in buildings where we're not only unicorns. Um, hey, hashtag are, unicorn council. Where we at? Where we at? Hey. We, we here. Marketing. <laughs> so I'm going to start with Brian and go to Steve. Sure. We go back to when you first was first started being when you became a counselor. Mm-hmm. What did you feel like then, as knowing that you're you're a unicorn as a black male counselor in the field where it's predominantly women, and especially in the field that used to be predominantly Caucasian, yeah. and now to the field where it's pretty much still predominantly women, mm-hmm. still predominantly Caucasian, mm-hmm. but there's been an uptick in our in our demographic or whatnot. And how do you see it now from when you started as a counselor? Okay, I think that was a hot eight questions in one. I'm gonna start with the first one. Um, I, when I started, being a unicorn to me meant just really leaning into a different perspective. I knew that I was joining a team at that time of five women, uh, predominantly BIPOC women. Um, and I knew that I was the only LGBTQ member of our team, only man and only LGBTQ member of our team, but I was one of uh, three black counselors at that time. Um, For me, it really meant about finding my footing in the environment, making sure that my voice as a man uh, did not take up more space than it was due, because again, I was learning from um, some incredible, exceptional um, counselors. And I wanted to make sure that I was still in a position to learn, but also that I could uh, always find 
Brian's way into the into the intervention, Brian's way um, into the conversation. What do I bring or contribute? A lot of what I felt like I brought at that time was um, a real passion for comprehensive sexual health education, um, a real awareness of uh, issues related to LGBTQ community and raising awareness around the LGBTQ community. Um, and um, both the background in theater and sociology. I love tier one interventions. I love uh, classroom core curriculum for counselors. And I knew that was something that I would dive into wholeheartedly. I knew I was really passionate about mentorship. So for me, it was about assessing the environment and trying to find programmatically, personally, professionally, what my space was to start and how I could continue to grow into the counselor that I wanted to become. Now, what, seven, eight years later, it means so many different things. I think um, now it's about really modeling what it means to stand in your truth, uh, to speak truth to power, to engage with complex systems of oppression, uh, to use my voice in ways that I, I mean, at the time, talk about imposter syndrome. When I started, I didn't think that I would ever be in a position where my voice as a counselor would matter outside of the bubble in which I worked. And then my bubble grew aggressively in the last few years. And so for me now being a black male counselor um, really is part organizing and creating uh, strategic alliances and partnerships with men that I respect and think very, very highly of and continue to push me and inspire me and challenge me to grow. I'm looking at two of them now. A third when John pops on here. (laughs) Um, It's also about uh, really finding strategic ways to uh, interrupt racism and and truly speak truth to power. I started off having a very clear point of view when it came to um, diversity and what that meant, inclusion and what that meant. And then I think for me, I really come into this next layer of understanding not only what is equity in my work, but how do I push the envelope? What is the, where am I, where is my positionality in my own equity work? Where's my team, where is my school? And what is the next right thing that we can do together to support our students and communities? And really owning that um, and leaning into that in any way that I can. Um, And again, understanding that my unique voice isn't the only voice, that even though I'm a marginalized population in significant ways, um, I have privileges in others. Um, Few, but I still have some. And how do I own those privileges, leverage them appropriately, while also uh, creating space and opportunities for other marginalized identities, because there are so many. Frank, can you talk a little bit, just like hearing that right now, and just talking about like speaking to truth to power. I mean, like your, your narrative is always so powerful, but like Becoming just the journey of becoming a school counselor, your finalist, let alone school counselor of the year where you have a platform, mm-hmm. you have that power for even whether it be a year, clearly you've added a lot of mileage and have changed the dimension of the experience so much more. Sure. I mean, can you talk about like just how that experience added either voice or power to your speaking truth to power? hundred percent. I think... Uh, when I started this journey, I didn't know what a school, a school counselor of the year was. I had no idea, honestly had no idea. Um, and then I became one. (laughs) And at first I thought my role was this, um, ambassadorship on behalf of the profession. And for me that, um, that had, uh, barriers and, um, parameters like, oh, well, I can't speak out of turn and I need to speak in a very specific way. And um, it felt uh, aggressively political. Um, And over time, I realized 
as I think a lot of marginalized populations do in positions of influence, wait, my voice matters in a very significant way. And I can use that not just in ways that people expect me to, but in ways that are meaningful to me. And how can I do both of those things? How do I not only create space for the things that are important to me, but draw other people into that conversation who may not otherwise have a voice themselves. And that's really been my journey of, wait, hold on, how do I continue to assess what's important for me to say? How do I represent myself? How do I represent my school? How do I represent the profession? And I'm always thinking about what moves the conversation forward and what is my role potentially in moving that conversation forward. And that is not where I was when I started this journey at all. And I feel like it's been a process of trial and error and learning how to step into my own power. And that as a, I don't know if any of you feel that way. I know that was something that I struggled with in my career as I grew and matured was weight. Can I step into my power and that be respected, affirmed and validated? And how do I find meaningful spaces where that can take place? And I'm very blessed that over the course of my, not only becoming Illinois School Counselor of the Year, becoming School Counselor of the Year, becoming an HRC Epstander of the Year, and all this other stuff, like I've been able to find spaces where my voice is affirmed and validated and I feel that I have something meaningful to contribute. Just, just speaking to that, do you think that you're stepping into that power, do you think, and, or do you think that power is always there and just the, valid, the additional external validation just help you to really be freed in that experience? And just yeah. the second part, as you're dropping all this, I only realized about five seconds ago that you're wearing a headset and we're just TED talking all over us. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm in, I'm in my headset. I love that. I feel like a, I work in a call center. Either way, um, I, I think I will buy the knives then after we're done. Okay, you're gonna you are you promised to buy the knives set. All right. Okay, we'll throw in a crockpot. We'll throw in a crockpot as well. No. Um, <laughs> what I would say that it was both. It was both. Um, really accepting the power that I already had that I had never sort of seen in myself and then stepping into the opportunities that I was afforded with an expanded platform through all of these different uh, channels. Like it was definitely too for me. I think I have a wonderful mentor and a wonderful team of support that's like, Brian, we've always taken you seriously. I think you're the last person to take you seriously and that's your work. And I'm like, you know what? show you right. And I think that over time, I've continued to find ways to believe in myself in a way that I think anyone who has ever dealt with imposter syndrome can relate to. I just, I ain't believe it. And now it's like, oh crap. Okay. I can, I have enough external evidence that to assess, yes, not only do I think I got something to say and that I have something important, but other people feel that way too. Great. How do I continue to believe in that and use it in a meaningful way? That's my journey. I was just like, I was thinking about imposter syndrome just, I think it was like last week, um, I was on a text thread, uh, Fabian was on it too. Um, and someone was talking about imposter syndrome a little bit. I was just like, I was really thinking about like, as much as we talk about imposter syndrome as being like something that we're dealing with internally, like at the same point, particularly when it comes to things like black excellence, for instance, is it really imposter syndrome? Like for us to excel in a system that is meant to really drive us down and to that we're working against in many ways, it, like it's not that we are imposters within the system, it's that we recognize this system for what it is. It, we're, we're flourishing in the midst of a system of oppression. And that's, 
that's different. That's not being an imposter, even though that might be the internalized experience that we're having at the same time. That was, that was my realization at 11 p.m. because I think a lot at nights. I love those 11 p.m. realizations. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think it's a yes and, not an either or. Definitely a yes and. Yeah. Look away, Steve. Yeah, like for myself, uh, just stepping into the profession, like I, I, um, like I spent a decade in acute behavioral health doing like psychiatric assessments um, in emergency rooms and in a psychiatric hospital. Um, I had a chance to really like develop and grow my leadership there and then come over to school counseling. And so like when I was coming in, I really knew kind of like what that why was. Like I wanted to be part of that prevention. I wanted to uh, be able to help people through that experience, their experiences earlier on, particularly kids. Um, so some of that initial, like um, this, like the hospital that I worked with, it was frankly serves the plain community. It serves uh, Amish and Old Order Mennonites. So a black person in that community, in many ways, I stuck out sometimes. Um, but at the same point, um, I th- and also just every night was extreme. Every day, several times a day, I was with people on the worst days of their lives. And I think that was coming into the temper of schools and the school setting. And I was able to be more comfortable being uncomfortable in that setting that I think I would have been afforded had I gone in right after college. Um, and like I, I was like, I think just kind of that balance as far as just um, recognizing opportunity and also kind of at the same point, having to be a, an ambassador <laughs> for your race, an advocate for kids and the vulnerability that you experience with that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that I think as I have feel like I've really developed into my own leadership, I feel like I'm able to speak as far as with a lot of different areas in ways of distinction. I think a lot of those things were a lot of things I thought would be like the things I would hold close as far as being like those traditional things as far as masculinity, like being like strong and bullheaded and domineering. Like those are the things like I think as I become more developed and a leader are the things I most tried to shed and let go of for myself. Like I know, what was it like probably two summers ago, you were talking to the whole group um, at ASCA for that private dinner and like uh, Brian was and asking his first feedback as for our school counselor leadership. And like the first thing I identify with is vulnerability. I think it's just to be an effective school counselor leadership. And what I really try to do for myself is like be willing to feel it and be willing to accept risk and be okay to sit with that. I think that's been helpful for me to navigate through uh, really white dominated spaces, I think has been helpful for me to find my voice. I think it's been helpful for me to lead a lot of different school counseling teams. Um, it's just being comfortable in the discomfort sometimes. I think with that, I'm able to be more authentic in my experience and also connect with other counselors where they're at. Like as much as we talk about imposter syndrome, like the one part is I think like, particularly in our profession, I don't think often enough like counselors willing to let themselves feel that vulnerability to connect with their students and with each other in that way. 
I mean, that's so it's complicated to do because I feel like a lot of people, especially in education, try to find ways in which they can connect to youth in a especially counselors in a boundaried, intentional way. Um, and how do you uh, both uh, create a strong alliance, boundaried alliance, centering the student while also creating space for your vulnerability while encouraging them to step into their own? That's a lot of balls to juggle at once. And I and I think that juggling them all uh, simultaneously can be very difficult. And I know at times in my career, I felt like I had to choose. Um, increasingly, I don't, but I also am very careful about how I model that because I come off fun and silly and bubbly and I can use very, I use a lot of colloquialisms and I use foul language sometimes, whatever. Um, and if you didn't know me, you would make some assumptions about who I am, what I'm about, and how I might present to my students. Um, but I'm a damn good counselor too. <laughs> so I wanna be very clear in when I am leaning into that vulnerability, when I am doing that intentionally, do people understand the intention behind it and how it supports the work of a counselor? I don't know that everybody gets that at the same time. So code switching is definitely a thing that's important um, and naming yeah. it when it's occurring it's just as important. Let me let John uh, hop in here. Um, John, thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, we were discuss discussing identity, and this is, uh, I would say, metamorphosized into a discussion of, oh, I forgot the word already, just look at talking, imposter syndrome. And I know you've been a counselor, this is your fourth year as a counselor. Um, if you did have thoughts of imposter, imposter syndrome, imposter um, syndrome or imposter experience, um, what would you say will be the, the one biggest, I guess, symptom that you have experienced being a counselor? I think I want to start off by saying hey to everybody. And then after that, um, I think the whole cliche around having a word twice as hard or three times as hard um, just to have the same outcomes as, as white people. Um, I think that is something that it travels with me on a regular basis. And uh, it's not as present with me on most days, but I know when I have to do something that's on a bigger level or if it's um, something that's kind of new like if I'm presenting to a new group of people or if I'm, you know, having to connect with folks I haven't connected before, it's present. And I feel like I got to hustle. Um, and even if I've done the same thing over and over and over again, and it's just a new space uh, for me to do that same thing. And I feel like I have to go back to the drawing board, and, you know, reanalyze and make sure that all of the things are going to fit together in the right way. And I think um, part of that, at, at the root is just feeling like, am I enough for this space? And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's real. And I think it, it kind of is present with me in a lot of different ways too, because, um, you know, just being, being, being a man, I feel like I need to be able to support my family. And then being a black man, I feel like people don't expect me to support my family. And then being in the school counselor space with a lot of women, I feel like there are a lot of people who kind of ascribe a leadership role to me uh, because I'm a man, but also <laughs> there are moments where 
because I'm black, I think they are surprised that I'm in a leadership role. So it's, it's just a lot of different things going on that kind of make it challenging. And code switching does come up a lot uh, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, in a lot of ways, it's, it's automatic at this point, but I think my parents really, really taught me how to, how to uh, make white people feel safe around, around me. I think that was one of the, like code switching has a lot of, it has utility, right? Um, it's not something that ideally I, w- I wish I had to do. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I'm, I don't want to have to raise my kids in a way where they have to feel like they need to adjust themselves. But I do agree with the idea of being able to communicate with your audience. And I, and I feel like my parents definitely taught me how to do that. Um, and my community taught me how to do that. But again, some of the reason that I can switch back and forth with such ease and so many other black people too, is because you had the way you talk at home wasn't good enough for the space that you had to enter when you exited when you exited the home. So I mean, it's, I think that imposter syndrome piece is built up in so many areas of my life, and I don't even realize it sometimes. Um, and I think a lot of my work ethic, a lot of my hustle, is actually in response to the the idea that even though I've ha- I have all these achievements and I have all these degrees, um, there's something that I don't have. Right? There's just something that I got to get more of. And, um, you know, yeah, it, when people tell me how great I am, sometimes I'm like, are you, talk, you talking about me? Are you, me? Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? And, and I think I'm still trying to process that and internalize, yo, you, one, you're worthy. Like you're, you know, you're not perfect, but you're a human being. And then two, you have done a lot of stuff, right? So acknowledge the things that you've done, um, you know, because that self-talk is so critical. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I know for me and dealing with it, I, I deal with it every day. Um, I was dealing with it when I was drum major. And some of y'all don't know this shit uh, probably, but I was drum major in high school, drum major at the HBCU, uh, retail management before I came into, um, came into school counseling, school counseling and I still deal with it even in my job. I, as y'all know, I switched jobs in February. Well, I switched locations in February. And even when I learned from a counselor that did it for 25 years, I felt like I still had something to prove, even when they say you're doing a great job and bring different ideas to the table, different different things. I'm like, is this good enough? I think it's, for me, you can add on, I guess, a validation complex. Uh, I, have to, I have to get that my personality is nothing's going to be perfect. Nothing's going to be right. It's not going to be, it's, it could be the, the, it could go so smooth and I could find the tiniest little thing wrong with it and just tear it apart. I mean, literally I could finish with something at nine o'clock and at nine, nine o'clock in 30 seconds, I don't ripped it apart and found another way to do it. And then when I do it that way, 30 seconds later after that, I don't ripped it up and found another way to do it. And, and that's, I think that's just something I think, especially um, African-American females, we as male counselors deal with because we were a minority within a minority. And we just have, we always going out there to approve, uh, try to prove ourselves. And that's, that you could say that's kind of like a, a covert way of, of silencing us in a sense. Am I really good enough? That's why some of us go in administration, like, like why we get pushed in that direction. 
that could feel like a way of saying, well, I thought I was a good counselor, but I guess they want me as an administrator. So come administrators, then you have some administrator that's burnt out, go back to counseling, or just go leave the field altogether. And that leads me to my next my next question on this one. Um, as far as being a black male counselor, as far as imposter experience and possibly going into different positions, how do we self-care and how do we battle that on a daily basis to make sure that we don't need that extra validation or extra self-criticism, um, Steve? How do we do that? Yeah, like I, I, was, I was listening to you and thinking about it for a little bit. I mean, like, like there's, I was listening to some of your other episodes um, just a few weeks ago. I think it was when you were talking about sexuality a little bit, and, and that had me really thinking because, like, um, like for us as like school counselors, like the hustle, the drive, the double checking yourself, like there's a lot of part of that I think is missed out on. Like when we talk about systems of oppression, it's the point as far as like exploitation. And I think it's a conversation that we don't really talk about enough. Like exploitation in and of itself is like, it's not saying there's an absence of strength. It's saying like there are plenty of strengths and resources and ability to be found. It's just the return on investment is not going to the person who's originating that effort. And so like there, there becomes a really a question there. Like if we are, we're putting in the time to double check ourselves and stuff like that. And we're finding validation in it like that. Like good. That is conscientiousness. But if we're, if we're burning away our anxiety for the work that for other people and being put to the front forefront and maybe it seems like it's more of an institutional drive that kind of feels like exploitation. And so like, I think there, and like that balance, unfortunately, I think it's a diff there's, the balance is somewhere internal. It's where we find our own personal narrative. We're able to transform it. The balance is somewhere external at the same point. Um, and like, as far as like how we do that, I think there are the self-care pieces. I mean, like part of it is just knowing like your own narrative, knowing your own why, and also recognizing, I mean, one of the biggest things I feel like I have tried and has been helpful for me is just to understand the work and understand the system and understand the characteristics of oppression and understanding how it plays out. Like it's been helpful for me to see the trees in the forest a little bit more, I think for my own personal narrative. But I think in addition to that, it's helpful just from like a counseling CBT standpoint, it's just like knowing how to soothe yourself through the process so it never becomes a crisis. So like, I know for me, music, exercise, those are my things, but I think, I don't know, like the parts that I think that we, we shift the narrative are, are like moments like this. I mean, like the reality is like spaces, affinity spaces or just black spaces where we can spend time together. That doesn't happen in our work day. Like the reality is most of our jobs as school counselors are pretty isolating um, because we're just, in solitude, investing ourselves in the school. In solitude, we're investing ourselves in other students. And just to have peers that we can connect with, like this, you know, like it's it's at conferences sometimes. I mean, like until you get to a certain point and then like you're public facing in the conference and you have to spend your time with a couple hundred people at a time. Um, or like at the same point, 
like I, I really think when it comes to like I do strongly feel like school counseling leadership is unique leadership because I think that those therapeutic pieces and that understanding of human development I, I, and emotions and the vulnerability as for building relationships, like that's something that we have in our training. That's something that we're in tune to that draws us to the profession. Like more often than not, like CEOs have to pay for that after the fact and call it executive coaching. And that's part of our core skill set. Like then all we get the data management and stuff to understand how the tools to start to understand what the system looks like. And then in addition to that, like, I feel like black school counseling leadership, it's unique enough that because then we also have all those internal narrative and lived experiences as well to inform us. I, I feel strongly about like the work that we do, like not the work that we do, just really who we are on this call. That's why I was very anxious to be like, yes, please. I just want to listen. Um, but like, I think you can't forget that Steve is why all of us are together doing this. He said, oh, you want to get John? You want to get Brian? Great. We should do something as a group. I <laughs> <laughs> myself to this party and you know what? Vulnerability, zero regrets. No, I want to, I want to time, chime in on a little bit of what I heard from you, Steve. First, talking about exploitation. Um, when I became a uh, school counselor of the year, that was probably something I thought about obsessively more than arguably anything else, at least for the first six months, just because I was very aware as the first black winner, first person of color to win it. Um, and also as a well-known gay figure, um, that people expected certain things and would prop me up in certain ways based on my identities alone. Um, and that hasn't, I'm not going to front like that stopped. That still is a very regular part of my life. People expecting to use whatever I am or exist as for their own benefit, right? I think what shifted for me was, and you talked a little bit about this, just understanding not only what am I giving and contributing to others, but what am I actually getting from this experience? What, and is that what I want? Am I truly using my voice, my identities, my time in a way that is leading to me benefiting in a way that I can really say fulfills me and brings me joy? And for the first six months of this experience, when I got to this level, I hated it. I was woefully unhappy. I was not getting what I wanted from it at all because I just didn't know how to exist at this level. I did not know how to really protect myself and to sustain boundaries because I'd never, I mean, you had leadership experience before you came into counseling. I was an actor and a higher ed administrator uh, that became a counselor. And I was like, oh, okay, wait, what is, and I just wanted to be really good at this. Just do this work in a way that brought change and supported students. I just, I just want to be really good at it. I didn't think about leadership. Leadership came to me, but I wasn't thinking about leadership, right? Um, and then it happened in this really powerful way. And I think part of what has sustained me, a big significant piece of my self-care has been finding other Black counselors, other marginalized counselors, because I am a Black gay man. Like, I, my gayness comes up all damn time. I talk about it all the time, right? But finding other marginalized identities and populations who could speak to what it means to be exploited, concerns about exploitation, their own process of coping with both 
uh, internalized and external oppressions and the steps in which they were actively taking and still taking in their lives uh, to combat that, to cope with that, to overcome that. Like this, what we're doing today. And I won't front, as we've talked about the first time we came together, like the reality is we're not just kicking it, talking to each other right now. We're recording something that people will listen to. Even after the last time we spoke, I had people come to me like, wow, yeah, like you, you came together and oh my God, that's so fun. It's not at all what I expected and wow, you use foul language. And I mean, I thought this was going to be something that I could share, like, you know, with, with my, like with other counselors. I don't know if this is what I, and I find myself still shook at the idea that in those types of conversations, this, what we're doing, this affinity space that we're creating and creating is still being exploited because this at no point was communicated to anyone to be educational, to be, this is not, this was not to be on any, this was not designed to be on any, anybody's syllabus, yet even still just hearing and knowing the voices that are coming together and knowing what we bring to the table, there's an expectation that in addition to just living and breathing and thriving and connecting and collaborating, we're still also going to be teaching and educating people who may not otherwise be privy to our experience. And that's, that's fascinating. It's a never ending sort of uh, dance with the realities of being, you know, a black counselor leader, but having spaces like this, having communities of people that I can connect to and can validate my experience is really, really important. And having spaces where I can take off my unicorn horn, stop smiling and dancing and jumping up and down, and I can be real as fuck. And yes, I just said fuck because I felt like it, right? And spaces and having spaces when I can do that is meaningful to me. And that is what helps sustain me. Uh, you know, just, I just want to say that um, I, I, could, I couldn't care less about what the heck people think. Gosh darn it. And uh, yeah, uh, but, <laughs> but nah, like, but nah, like, I, I think that, um, I think that self-care piece is, is key. And I think that it's like we, we uh, I think a lot of times we kind of think of ourselves as individuals without a setting or environment when in, in, when in actuality you can't really separate those two things. So, I, you know, I kind of, I think it's super important to understand the ecological environment that you're navigating and how you fit within it. So to, to you know, the point that Steve was making, understanding like, hey, racism is real and, you know, heterosexism is real and, you know, uh, all of these different systems of oppression are real and we're navigating through them and they're shaping the way that we move through the world. So yeah, you might mess up. Somebody might interact with you in a certain way and you may get treated more harshly for that. And, and you need to know that whether you messed up or not, there are some people and some experiences that are going to happen to you just because of how you show up in the world. And I think that that was a really big um, that's been really big for me over the years. It's just understanding like, okay, yeah, I know I can do better. Um, and I think the flip side of that is like, yes, I can do better because all of these challenges are existing in my life. But, um, you know, without that context, it would just be, man, there's something that I'm doing wrong. Right. And I'll be, and I would just be internalizing it. And I still have to, I still have to work through that internalization process but at the end of the day i can i can go back to the fact that yo you know racism is real and so i i think kind of starting there has been super helpful and then the other piece is understanding my own agency because um you know 
even though all of those systems exist, like that, like if, if it was all about race, then then every white person I know would be successful, right? Like all the white people in the world would be millionaires and billionaires. And you know, if that was the only factor, and I think acknowledging that there's this struggle that humans have helps me, you know, connect with other humans in a way that makes me feel better, but at the same time, acknowledge my own agency because I know that there are people throughout humanity who have been through some really tremendously difficult things. And I pull from that strength to, to believe that, hey, I'm a human too, maybe I can do that. And, and I think there's a fine line between that and saying like, look at that person. They look like you and they made it and you can do it too. But I think um, being able to pull from, you know, different humans doing great things has really been helpful for me. Um, so yeah, from, from, I guess, more of a epistemological um, standpoint or like, a, you know, for, like just for philosophically, self-care for me is really understanding the way that the world operates in a better way. And it gives me hope that I can, you know, better navigate it or improve the outcomes by working alone or with other people. Uh, and then like on like a day-to-day -day tip, I think um, working out was really big for me and I'm getting older and my knees feel like they're, you know, aging faster than the rest of my body. And so I can't run like I used to, but, you know, I'm trying to figure out what that looks like. Now, shut up, man. What's, what's up? You're saying your joints hurt right now. Just no, wait. No, 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 no. I'm saying that um, you know, <laughs> I feel older than that shit. But so I, I stopped doing everything for for a little bit until I could go see like a physical therapist because I didn't want to cause any long-term damage. So like I, you know, I was running... You know, on on the average, I I run like fifteen to twenty miles a week, and you know that that was like life for me. And so I've, I've been trying to figure out what with the all or nothing, right? What is something? <laughs> so like I'm I'm trying to walk every day a mile, which is like twenty minutes, you know. Or you know, we we have recycling. So in our apartment complex, I try to walk the recycling to the to the trash bins. Um, you know, just trying to incorporate different things in my life. So I know music is a big part of me. Uh, Outkast, Childish Gambino, uh, Kid Cudi when I'm feeling sad, uh, Erica Badu, all of, K Trinata, right? All of these different types of music really, really uh, helped me. Um, and yeah, that, and self-care, the other piece is talking with people. And I realized too, you know, I'm gonna like, you know, wrap it up real quick, but I did want to say that, um, you know, black, black women have a higher, tend to have a higher life expectancy than black men. And, um, you know, there are, there are different layers of oppression there, but I, I used to kind of wonder why, why is that? And I know part of it is because we are taken out at early, good, good job. We are taken out at, um, you know, earlier ages in lots of different ways, but it's not that like, even if you control for all that, I think part of it is because they like black women are more likely to talk about the stuff that they're going through and not hold it in. And so being able, and, and women in general, because the same is true for every racial category, the women tend to live longer than men. And I think uh, the way that they, the way that women tend to interact in, in their relationships is different from men. And I think part of the self-care has been really renegotiating what my manhood looks like and being able to be vulnerable, like some of what you all said earlier, being able to be vulnerable, talk about what I'm going through, or at least, um, you know, find therapy when I'm not in a counseling program to really talk through my issues. Uh, and I think that's probably the biggest thing is like getting, working up the courage to, to say, hey, I need to talk about this. Whether it's with a therapist or with you know somebody else in your life that you trust. 
So that that's another huge piece of self care for me um, that I'm that I'm trying to incorporate more frequently in my life. Wait, so, I wanna I wanna speak to something there at, at the end that I think is so important to drive home talking to somebody, getting a therapist, and I talk about this on the road and it's a very core component of my story, but like getting a therapist as a professional counselor changed my life. (laughs) Getting a therapist and getting a mentor, two people that I talk to consistently about two sacred parts of my life and identity on a regular basis is critical core, integral to my wellness. So if you out there thinking like, I don't know if that's for me, if you out here helping people, giving of yourself in this Mm -hmm. way on a consistent basis, and you are not intentionally engaging in your wellness in the same way, come on. Right. Talk. That's all I had to say. Who pouring into you? Like Straight up. How you getting refilled? You know what I mean? Like, that's such a good point. So, goddamn. That's there for rock. You know, like the one part of that I was hearing Brian just, I mean, like as far as just like, like the balance of it all, like, like leadership, let alone I, leadership is performative. Like it, it is. And I, I think in addition to that, what we're talking about is like black professionalism is, is performative in addition to that. And like the balance and the toll, I think of both of those individually, let alone I think the combination of it, like it's, and I do believe school counseling is a leadership profession. Like, let alone in addition to that, like we understand, like, like the caring professions, very performative. And like, once we, like, I think there's a unique exacerbating toll that can happen in the work that we do that um, to understand how we're finding that balance and how we're filling our cups, as John was saying, I, I think that's something that is a unique tension that other professions don't quite have. Let me ask you guys this, Dan. You just set me up perfectly what I want to talk about. Do you see, let me rephrase that. Do you see as exploitation of black male school counselors going administration? Can you say again? Do you see it as a as the exploitation of the limit, well, let me come back again. Raise it. I'm, I know Brian for get on me. What is that? But um, it's black male council. We're like you say, it's a leadership position. We're already black males. We're unicorns. We're being driven to go into admin roles in the building as far as APs or principals. Do you see that as a form of exploitation to use black men as a as a forced leadership position in buildings? Wherever there are Black people and Black bodies, I think there is space for exploitation, period, and uh, probability of exploitation, period. Um, I There's something about what you just said, Fabian, that makes me think about all of the people that said prior to the election cycle, Michelle Obama really needs to run. Why doesn't Michelle Obama become president, right? This kind of this idea of, it's like putting black people in the position to save right i think that's part of what comes up in this i like and i and i cannot say for any reason that every black counselor that goes into administration is forced there right um what is their experience of of that of that once they get there that can be very complicated how do they navigate that and negotiate that but i think there is something to the idea that 
we should lead or save or fix uh, broken systems or broken institutions, broken processes through our voice, through our labor um, is absolutely complicated and absolutely exploitative. And how you engage with that reality um, and how you navigate those systems, I think it has a lot to do with your self-care, your community, who are the people that are feeding you, supporting you, protecting you, and watching you as you navigate through that process. But in terms of the probability of exploitation, I think it's relatively high. I think looking at things in terms of odds is exactly what we need to do more often because I think uh, people look for the exception to whatever rule we're talking about and use that to dismiss whatever claim we're trying to make. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, and I think the probability of being exploited is definitely higher. Uh, and there's a correlation between that and however many marginalized groups you belong to, right? Um, you, you know, like it's, they're conversely related. So um, I, I really appreciate this framing. Now, I would, so this is the, are we being exploited? Um, there, there's always an exchange taking place for sure. I think that um, exploitation kind of adds a level of, of, you know, malice to it that isn't always there. Um, at least when people hear that term, I think that's what they think. Um, but I, I do think there's always an exchange taking place. And as long as you're working for um, working in, in an employment type of situation, you're not going to be getting the highest return on your investment. And I think we should all acknowledge that point blank period. Uh, I also think that, um, you know, we're like I said, we, we have this um, interconnection between you know, ourselves and our environment. And so we also have to acknowledge that, you know, the environments in education are definitely shaping us in a particular way. It's, you know, there are certain attractors that cause black people and black men specifically in education to move in a certain direction. You're more likely to move in a certain direction. It's like you're being nudged in, by, by, by like an invisible elbow sometimes. And I think um, the way that I respond to that a lot of times is just kind of one, you know, I, I think, like I said, I think people kind of assume that I'm a leader before I before I say or do anything, like a lot of times, I think I think that assumption is there because I'm a man and I'm entering a space that's you know essentially dominated by women, um, or at least that's that's majority women, right? So I think there's that, and then I, and I also think that um, part of what brought me to that space is my personality, right? I I actually did leadership types of things. That's what made me part partially want to be in education because um, I felt like how can you lead in you know, without helping people know how to, how to, how can you leave without knowing how to facilitate learning, right? That's what really attracted me to all of this. So, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, though, um, counselors have gone into admin that I know, uh, you know, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Everyone has a, has a reason behind it, but I, I do think that um, I wonder how often people go because they feel like being a school counselor is not enough. And that would be what I, you know, what, what I would question. Cause it's like, you know, do you really want to be an administrator? Maybe you need to try it out. Maybe you don't know for sure. Maybe you think that's what you want to do, or maybe you actually want to do it, but is it that, or do you just feel like, you know, being a school counselor or moving up, maybe there aren't as many opportunities to move up as a school counselor. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think there are other factors that influence that decision-making process. Um, and yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, exploitation isn't isn't necessarily the framing that I would use, though I think it is, you know, like I said, the probability is there. But I do think that we don't make enough in education. Uh, we people people feel like they want more power in general. People want to be have have higher status. People want to feel like they're they're valued more. And I think all those things can be you know achieved through administration. I think those are some of the the driving factors that make black men specifically want to move in that direction too. So. John has said something a few times that I want to comment on the reality of. Um, there being so many women in our profession. And that is so true. Um, so many white women, uh, particularly. Um, however, when you look at leadership, mm. I don't see women. So when we're talking about where, uh, what the system sets up for men generally, it is leadership. And that uh, is something that I think really hits at one of the gross inequities in education across the board is that you may, we may be in a profession that's predominantly female, but in leadership, it's predominantly male. And what the hell is that about, right? Mm -hmm. And how are we perpetuating that, right, through some of this movement? How are we using our voice, our power um, to potentially set up uh, other individuals who aren't cisgender men um, for those types of opportunities. And also thinking about more about like, well, when we do get into these spaces, how are we staying aware of our voice and, and how much our voice, how much room do we take up, right? How does our voice sit in this space? Because we are set up as men. One of the few privileges I think that I would uh, ascribe to um, as a man in education is that I am a man. Um, and I present as male. And when I say something, when I have a perspective, when I have an opinion, especially in a room that is predominantly female, um, I tend to be listened to. And I don't tend to be questioned, right, or undermined. And I think that's part of the, the, the inequities that we are existing within. Yeah, like, here's, like when you're talking about really just kind of the, the patriarchy that's in education. Uh, but at the same point, John, when you're talking about like, the nudging that is being felt like the reality is like we know education is a system of oppression and like as much as as much as i felt like a, the fundamental thing that's helped me to understand oppression um and anti-racism anti-oppression work is just feminist black literature like god lord like the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and when you really think about it then you can understand like education is a monolithic system in the end it moves to a single point, a single individual at any point you're at, building principal to superintendent to uh, chancellor in some states to secretary of education to secretary of education. Like, those are, that's a monolithic structure and of it we can say that has the indicators of being a system of oppression. And so then we, we can understand like anti-racist systems, anti-oppression systems, anti-patriarchal systems are then going to be prolific they're going to be distributed leadership they're going to be horizontal and that's the part that like i really feel like if you're feeling the nudge it's because the system is moving you in that way it's a capitalistic system that we work in if you want to have economic opportunity so that you can provide for your family and pay for all four of your daughters to go to college across two decades like what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna probably have to go on that administrative track because you're gonna need to make sure that you're making six figures on that return and you're gonna be paying out because you understand you've had a lot of smart black women in your households or you're gonna be paying a lot of money for those fancy ass colleges. 
Um, but even more so, what we can say then is like what school council leadership is unique is like we need to hold fast to it because the leadership we do is distributed leadership. We don't look to go for all the power through us. We use our power, our resources, our influence, our advocacy to do that systemic change. And we do that by empowering our students, by empowering our parents, and then our teachers and the system after that. Now, that's different leadership. Yeah. That is narrowly some of the leadership that some of us might have been afforded in our educational training. I do believe that is leadership that you can find present in some of our, in our guiding documents. But that's stuff you have to search out to truly understand. Like if we're going to be agents of systemic change, if we're going to be really moving towards an equitable system, then our leadership is just as important as principal leadership. And it needs to stay there as dynamic leadership in the school. So as there is a monolithic system, I'm not saying that your principals are racist or patriarchal, but I am saying in their specific role, yes, they kind of are. Then our roles as school counselors need to be distinct and to hold fast as that opposing force to hopefully to promote equity in the building. Because if not, it's a systemic structure. It doesn't matter what the intentions are. It doesn't even matter if you are a, a dope, woke, black male counselor. The system is going to be nudging you in directions constantly because it's a system. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care what you think. It's going to be moving along lines of patriarchy, heterosexuality, you know, like Christianity, whiteness. The two things I'm so glad to excel in is heterosexuality and patriarchy. I did want to come back to a piece that you said, though, Steve, and I think John said this as well, leadership. And, may, and part of what moves us into um, maybe administration is that people feel that counseling in and of itself isn't enough. And Steve, what I hear you saying, moving to this prolific leadership is really embracing the complexity and the power and influence that comes in the role. C could we talk a little bit about specifically how you make the case for us, for Black men to really engage in counseling in a way that provides some of these trappings that might lead folks into administration? Like, how do you find all of that? Because I don't see any principles up on this call. How do you find that in your role as school counselors? Um, first, I'd like to say Black school counseling matters. Hashtag it. Hashtag it. Uh, when we talk about it, I think first it is to, again, recognize the system for what it is. And it is an impressive system. And then also to recognize and really embrace school counseling as a leadership role. Like, those are just two places that we need to start with. And if we understand it, then when we talk about, like, Black male school counseling, like what is, is just a basic part. It's something I know that Brian, that you do exceptionally well. Like I, it's something that I know like Fabian is something that you give voice to two, three times a month. And John, like every time that we talk on the phone or on like messenger, like the parts that we are, it's like embracing the lived experience and you're using your lived experience, not to platform yourself, but to be a vessel to platform your students' experience and your family's experiences, all those other voices that can't be heard. And that's different. And I feel like that's different because like other educators respectfully, they're going to use it to prop up the system. They're going to say, this is why the systems work. This is why the system should remain this way. 
And what we're trying to do is to use our lived experience to say that I am a colleague with you here. And in addition to that, if you feel my voice matters, there are elements of my students or this family members lived experience that matters or as a colleague with you right now, this experience that I'm sharing with you from my professional expertise and training is saying with supporting data, Bladau, this student's lived experience is parallel to this and you need to recognize that and maybe question if the system's really working how you think it should be working. Steve, can we stop for a moment and just acknowledge that you said Bladau? Like, I didn't realize it was 1993, but I like it. Continue on. I point out that I live in 1993. Um, so <laughs> I do. You know what? The Orlando Magic are doing great. Shaq just dropped a video game and a rap album. Are you talking? Uh, you're not talking about Shaq Fu. You're not talking I about Shaq Fu. Shaq Fu. The album and the game. I'm so mad at you right now. Like my heart just grew three sizes and I'm upset about it. Go on. You the, you the Let's talk it out later. Uh, this is me vulnerable. This is me being my true self in front of you. No, but I think that is like school counselors, like what we understand, like for everyone else right now is that um, people are going to like, we do it all the time. It, it's a trapping. We put like personal characteristics on inanimate things. That's like why you have such rich and emotional feelings about Shaq Fu right now. That's why you, we've been talking so much about Mortal Kombat, which is again, just ones and zeros that uh, illustrate kicking in the end. But like one of the biggest- Kicking things that, that would lead me to win over John, just so no, we're clear. That That's was assumed, that was absolutely Okay, great, I just want to clarify that, go on. But it really is like school counselor leadership in and of itself. We're saying that we're going to take, we're going to turn the attention towards our students. We're going to make sure that it is human focused and not systems focused. And we're going to use our data, which is going to be the numbers. It's going to be disparity. It's going to be opportunity. It's going to be the, the narratives of from ourselves, our colleagues and our students and families lived experiences. These are all powerful data points and we're going to package them up pluck them like flowers and hand them back as a bouquet to say, and this should be the student experience. Like that's the part that is distinct when it comes to school counselor leadership. And I think especially black school counselor leadership. Um, and in addition to that, Shaq Fu, it is a mediocre game, but it's an exceptional media experience. Wait, have you ever taken a basketball, turned it into fire, ice, and infused it with lightning and thrown it? Have you ever? Because if you haven't, you can't come for Shaq Fu. That is all. This guy right here, Renaissance man across the yes. Wow. I've never played that game before. Yeah, Fabian, this is a part where as you as an educated host lie. Yeah, I, pl I played the game plenty of times, man. I played it. I played it all my life. I played it when I was seven years old. Yeah, before Shaq was born. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Right, you always use the shuriken with Shaq. You always would use Shaq's shuriken because he could turn the basketball into a shuriken as well. But you know that, Fabian. So, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you didn't already know. Yeah, I knew that, man. I knew that. I just, just had to refresh my memory. You, you take the martial arts and the basketball arts, and what you have? Shaq feel. You know what that is? Art. Art. With a dope drum beat, that. Yeah. This is where I think I say, blood out. Blood out. 
<laughs> and we are going to selectively omit the Steel movie that came out shortly thereafter, though. Uh, we gonna, yeah, we won't let that one ride. Okay. I do, I do want to chime in on some of what, what you said up to this point. Um, I think that that from a leadership standpoint, um, and just talking about how <clears throat> leadership looks as a school counselor, and then as men and black men in school counseling, I think um, that's worthy of digging into a little bit more because I, I think that uh, you know we're talking about manhood um, and then we're talking about being a profession that's predominantly white female um, <clears throat> and, and thinking about how we associate gender norms with different activities and have different expectations for certain things. I think leadership does not escape that. And so even the way that we lead, I think is gendered um, even though, you know, everyone has a, everyone, Everyone can lead however they want, but I think typically when you think about um, masculine forms of leadership, it's not the collaboration. It's not the empathizing. It's not, uh, you know, gathering information from many different people to, to draw consensus. It's not um, <clears throat> listening to your stakeholders, right? That's not, <laughs> that's not what it is. It's I have all of the information. I'm the expert and I guide or I tell others what to do based on my expertise. And I think um, it's just interesting being in this space um, and, and kind of acknowledging that because I think some some of that also, um, you know, changes how I'm perceived in and outside of the field, right? Because if I'm, if I'm doing work as a school counselor, then that's more of the norm, right? But then also, again, I'm interacting with a field of people that is predominantly women. But if I'm doing this outside of the field, um, the ideas are cool and fresh, right? And, and um, sometimes, and then other times I've, I've been met with frustration because I'm not leading in the way that people expect that I should. But when it's refreshing, it, it just looks different because maybe it just looks different because I'm a man and I'm doing it, right? Um, and maybe no one is like engaged with someone who looks like me and leads in that way. So I, I just think all of that is interesting, including the you know comments you made, Steve, about like the black feminist uh, <clears throat> literature that kind of supports a lot of the, the, the horizontal leadership that, that is so effective. Um, so, I mean, I, I just really think that's interesting. And I think also, um, you know, in terms of the stuff that I've done before school counseling, I was the president of the National Black Graduate Student Association. And um, even looking at how leadership looks at an HBCU versus a PWI, and the different expectations that people have and um, how traditional or innovative people expect you to be as a leader is really an interesting conversation. And then moving into, you know, the school counseling profession um, and leading at, you know, at the school level and then at the, you know, local level and then state and a little bit at the national level now, it's like everyone, everyone leads more similarly, <laughs> like in terms of school counseling. I think it's really cool and interesting, but um, you know, I just wanted to speak to that a little bit because, uh, yeah, bro, I think I think the administrative style of leadership is different in that regard too. Because I think I think people have a lot of different ways to lead once you get to that level. But I, I think, in my experience, um, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, what do y'all think? Actually, let me let me like 
you know, put pause on that. Cause I've only had two principals and their leadership styles were different, right? So I'm wondering like, you know, it's part of the reason that people flow in towards administration as men because of, you know, the type of leadership you're expected to have in those positions too. Um, I don't know. What do y'all, what do y'all think? I think it's the system. I, I think it's money and the system. And Steve talked about the capitalist system, <laughs> period, period, right? And I think, that, like, I, like, in the, what, the last seven years, I, I've uh, worked with six leaders, like, uh, like a principal, and then the assistant principal model. Our model is, like, one principal, three to four assistant principals underneath, whatever. Um, and I happened, my direct, my direct supervisor now is a black man. Um, and looking at even our relationship as a black male counselor and then a black male leader, administrator, um, was interesting, right? And I've, I've often talked about uh, the, comp- the complexities that I have found being a black gay man and when and if I run into black straight men, particularly black straight men in positions of uh, authority or power over me um, and what comes up in those relationships, there is a lot of, there tends to be, in my lived experience, and I can't not speak to anybody else, but in my lived experience, there tends to be a lot of conflict, um, a sense of there's, there's a finite amount of space for our, our black maleness and we are jockeying for it. Um, and these are not power struggles that I like to engage in. Um, and I'm a competitive person. Don't don't believe that I, as I have come for John on Mortal Kombat Three. I know, right? Spoiler <laughs> alert! Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed that I'm admitting the spoiler. But and I think that's wrong all the time. It's crazy. I just come for and John and I and I can do that because John is just so nice and so calm about it that I just keep like throwing knives and John's like, okay, right, whatever. But I I think that 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 limited space that is created is part of the conflict, part of the part of the problem. And I think it's like, how do we not only dealing in predominantly white spaces, but also with the few of us that exist within this space, how do we engage with each other and lift each other up in meaningful ways? Because again, I think what Steve said about the system's gonna do the system's gonna do the system, right? Like it's always gonna do what it's set up to do, right? There are always gonna be positions for men and leadership because that's what the system expects, right? You white, black, any other way, if you a man, you got a, a decent shot at some point, either a space opening up for you or you being pushed into that space, right? It's how do we move toward more of a horizontal structure and really that takes commitment. That takes fighting the current because the system does the exact opposite. And that requires a lot of intention, focus and power organized power i think from us i feel organized power because like the reality is like we're we're socialized we're, we're grown up to think like this is how it's supposed to be but if you actually look at the information out there like the reality is like particularly in our 21st century connected world like distributed leadership is the way to go and that's that's horizontal that's not vertical that's that's connectedness that's not competition but we don't know it. and the reality is like we will instinctually continue to move in those directions without a lot of training education like mentorship and supervision and coaching to keep us to have those the awareness and to move against our instincts we will move in those directions but we understand like it was really interesting i did um 
I did just an informal research study for a, a different project that I'm working on out in California right now, just trying to understand how people understood anti-racist leadership. And it was really like almost everyone, like 90% of the names that were returned, either authors or current academic and researchers. And th that speaks a lot to it because if you think about them, really the value is first anti-oppression work isn't your demonstrated authoritarian rule or your political prowess or something like that. The value is in the ideas and the utility of them. And so like, that's again, where I think like we as school counselors, I, I think it is, I like, haha, I've gotten a lot of nice attention over the past few months uh, talking about schools in the midst of COVID, whether it be on ASCA or NACAC or in our own state association, it's just talking about really where we're at and what's to come. And we understand in this, the midst of this crisis, whether it be mental health, whether it be the disrupted economy, whether it be academic skills gap, whether it be continuing conversations as far as disparity or racial injustice, like all those are through roads through school counseling at this point. Our, our jobs are more important than other, more important than ever. I think we need to hold fast and recognize what we are and what we are are very unique 21st century leaders in an oppressive system. If we can recognize that, I think we can excel. And I think that's really gets to the spirit of this call right now. Like we're black male school counselors. We're, we're exceptional leaders talking about anti-oppression work in our own right individually, let alone on this call together from across different sectors of the United States, all on the East Coast, mind you, or Central East. I just didn't want to say California because Fabian had said it before. Yeah. I don't like what just happened. I'm just going to say that. I don't like and, it. I'm logging a formal like, complaint. This is me saying you're, you're like, you round up. You know how you round up from five to 10? Like, yeah. especially Illinois, like you round up to the East Coast. Wait, uh, where I live, where I live in my space, um, it doesn't require rounding up to anyone, but it does require that the others round up to me. But I think I think that might also be part of my maleness and unpacking my own masculinity. That's a separate podcast. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. I was in Vegas. my kind of town. Uh, the central part is like old what we have here is really, I think, the f in way, main ways visualizes the future of education. And I really want us to hold fast to that. Like whether it be talk to Fabian for hours before we hit record to uh, like a year ago, whether it be like really the best, some of the best 20 minutes I had when people thought you and I were talking about important shit in our conference and you and I were just swearing at each other and everyone gave us space for a few minutes where we could just talk to each other like normal people or whether it be like, John, you pulling up with my bullshit as I blew you up on the phone, talking about how I love that you were just ranting at your school board about the most dope shit. Like all these things are things like that give me life and make me excited to be a school counselor. Cause like when we talk about leadership, like leadership is isolating because the reality is like you're out there in front and you look to your left or your right, and you know who you see around you? No one. But like the fact is whether it be, in Chicago or Hotlanta 
or anywhere else in Georgia. I like I'm I'm standing out there, and because you're taking lead, I can look across the field. I can see each and every one of you right now, and that's where you're saying, John. Like all of a sudden, as you're coming more national, you seem like you're finding your tribe, you're finding your people. The answer is, yeah. Like I see you guys. Like we found each other, and like we're able to come onto this call like we're family almost, and make fun of each other because, like the reality is, like. John, you're a baby, but you still have this beard that you had to trim back because it was looking like Methuselah. And he also ball-headed. He ball-headed. Yeah, ball-headed. And you ball-headed. We got two ball-headed men. I can't even do this. I can't even do this. I can do this. And Fabian. It grows on the sides, too. <laughs> yeah, I just have, like, it's one that comes all together, but it just, this, this U-shape action is going strong, still. The U. I don't even have a U anymore. I just have a. Like it looks like a broken like horseshoe. It really does. Wow. Wow. It's a it's a thing. That felt oppressive, the broken horseshoe. I felt oppressed by it. The reality is like it, yeah. I'm depressed by your hair. I'm depressed too. I guess we're I'll tell you what I'm not depressed by, y'all. I will say yeah. this this is such a wonderful experience of connectedness and validation and affirmation. And I think I do want to echo what Steve says about really creating a vision for the future of education, for the future of counseling. I think there is such a, a, a distinct, important space for our various types and connected types of leadership to move the conversation forward, to move the profession forward, to move education forward on behalf of our students, on behalf of our communities, on behalf of each other. And I just cannot say enough how much this means to me, how much I love kicking it with y'all. And if it's recorded every time I do it, I would do it. I will do this every day of the week and post it somewhere for nobody to watch just because I enjoy spending time with all of you so much. And I'm very grateful to you. So thank you. Yeah, this this was the highlight of my. Well, it's the first day of the month, so I can say this is the highlight of my month. Um, because wake up, get up, get up. It's the first of the month. Get up, get up, wake up. It's the first of. Bone thugs, anyone? Yeah. Good. Yeah. But Al, catch your checks for the catch your checks for the month. Yeah. Wake yeah. up. That's I, I swear I cannot understand not nail word they be saying. Wake up. All I know is a hook, man. Yeah, like, yeah the crossroads. Cross That's my home, man. Meet me at the crossroads. We won't be lonely. Me, see, we all. And I'm gonna say it at night. And I'm gonna say it at What was the song that the Wiggles were singing to you at that point? Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. What you gonna do? Gonna get ain't no way to hide. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely do uh, just echo everything that's been said already. Um, you know, and I, I think just from a leadership perspective, um, you know, it has to it has to continue to evolve because we're dealing with complex situations. Uh, <clears throat> like you all said, uh, these oppressive systems are real, and no, and I think that's the if there was something that I could communicate to every single counselor, every single counselor in training, it would be that regardless of your intention, the outcome of a system is that outcome. So like what, like if you're, if, if a system isn't racist because you as an individual do or do not 
like black people or people of color. That's not the thing that makes it racist. It's that these outcomes end up creating advantage for advantages for people that are white um, and disadvantages for those who are not white. And I think that's the idea that we kind of have to get across. And I think that will help, you know, continue to, to, to continue to support that evolution of leadership so that we can, you know, just build on that change that's happening. But yeah, like that's, I don't know, man, that's, that's one of the challenges. Um, Cause yeah, those relationships are real and people are really attached to their identities. And so, yeah, folks would rather, including myself, I would rather in a lot of ways, like not be called a sexist. And even though I know that I do things that are negative um, and I have to work on that and, you know, do better with that, it hurts, you know, nobody wants to be labeled that. So I think getting through that and understanding that regardless of what we do, we're contributing to outcomes and how do we make sure that those outcomes are moving in a particular direction? That that's the conversation that we got that, that needs to be like undergrad level conversation or even like that needs to be K through 12 level conversation. We need our kids having those types of conversations um, from, from day one. So um, I think this is helping and whether it's recorded or not, and whether or not anyone listens to it, I think I'm, I'm glad, like you said, Steve, that, that we that I can look out and see other people who are like alone <laughs> in a lot of different ways because it does it does feel lonely um, and it's good to know that you're not. <clears throat> I don't know, just kind of trying to think of like the reality is like just capturing the black story and all this. Like the reality is like through systems of oppression. Uh, we'd be able to make it transformative. Like with scraps of food, you know, like we, we create cuisine through just from the way instruments, we create jazz and popular music out of that. And like what I have to say, and on street corners, we make hip hop. And like here, like when we talk about education and systems that for students that look like you and I in 1993 or John in his crib, like the reality is like, like the reality is like uh, um, we've we've come here to represent some of the ideas of how we deliver our profession on what the future of education looks like distributed trying to raise voice to the voices and centering the educational experience on the students might otherwise be missed whether it be through race or gender or sexuality like making sure that we're capturing those and centering those experiences and transforming the system to meet them in whatever the occasion or circumstances that may evolve, whether it be COVID or racial injustice, like being part of that transformative experience, that, that's what black school counseling is about. And that's why it's going to be a hashtag on a t-shirt that Nakia Washington is gonna make for us one day. Shout out Nakia, your shirts keep me looking fly. Blood out. Blood out. Guys, I wanna thank you for coming on this evening, man. It's been a pleasure and like I say, we we could we could talk all night if we if we could, and it, like I said, this is the first month. I it's, this is my highlight of my month already. I, I appreciate you guys popping on on the continued discussion identity. I think I'm I think we might be rolling with that for the rest of the rest of the school year with identity and trying to trying to find out where we at as far as with COVID nineteen and social the social injustices versus um, zip zip code racism. Uh, so many different ways we can go this year, and I, I appreciate you being on, man. I, I got nothing else to say. I just I appreciate y'all, man. Thanks. I will be right back with my housekeeping items and my final thought on the Council Connection.
This is the part of the show where we go over housekeeping items. Of course, you can follow us on a lot of platforms like Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, Spotify, excuse me, and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at Fabe the PSC. You can follow my webpage, um, FabeTheCounselor.weebly.com. You can also follow us on Anchor at Anchor.fm forward slash Fabian dash Vix. Um, we're gonna have a lot of great guests. Diane Reese, first African American to be nominated for School Council of the Year, will be joining us this year, this school year. Um, we have a special guest for California, Roberto Aguilar. Um, talk about COVID-19 and the wildfires and how that is applied to school counseling. We'll be discussing that stuff with us on upcoming podcasts. We also welcome any administrators that want to talk about their roles as administrator and collaborating with their school counselors and how the role of that counselor affects their the school building and affects student achievement in all areas, academic, career, and social-emotional. We'll be right back. My final thought on a couple different things. You just have to listen to it. We'll be right back. Babe's final thought. As you know, I don't try to be political or try to persuade my listeners to a particular party or side or what have you but if you never vote before in your life this is the year to vote you need to vote like your life depends on it it doesn't matter if you Republican, Democrat Republican, Federalist Democrat, Republican Whig, Party, whatever your thoughts are on your political views are your political views Nobody says you're right, nobody says I'm right, nobody says you're wrong, nobody says I'm wrong. Those are your viewpoints, and by voting, you're showing your voice to be heard. This is probably the most important election this country has ever seen in in 230 years since it wrote his first constitution and had the first continental congress in Philadelphia in 1788, 1789 yes some folks might say well it ain't important yes it is because a lot of things are on the line and let's give a quick civics lesson for, for those that might not understand the president's role is a part of the executive branch Congress is the legislative branch. The Supreme Court is the judicial branch. The legislative branch creates the law. The executive branch executes. And the judicial branch interprets. And there have been a lot of different interpretations of the power of the executive branch. And there's been some double talk within the last four years if you remember back in 2016 when President Obama was trying to replace Scalia as a justice with um, with Merrick Congress stated that hey a president should not be trying to put a justice in place during the election year well 
President Obama was trying to do that in January, February, during primaries. Donald Trump tried to push through a candidate a month before the election, so that way he could possibly get rid of same-sex marriage, Obamacare, Roe v. Wade. Basically take us back about 50, 60 years just to try to make this country great again. But like I said, I don't get political. I'm just giving you a backstory to why it's important to vote this year because your people you elect make decisions that could affect you and your children for the next generation. So the president that we do have can affect laws for this country for the next 30, 40 years because remember, Supreme Court justices have a lifetime appointment. You can also say that anybody in Congress can have a lifetime appointment if they continue to get voted in, which is why it's it's very important to vote in your local elections for your local um, U.S. House representative or your U.S. Senator. Not just your state senator or your state representative because yeah, they make laws and everything, but those U.S. representatives and the U.S. Senate propose and make bills as far as anything to help your to help their citizens. Like my representative where I live at, Austin Scott, I have not seen an ad for him in the last four to six years. I haven't, I haven't seen him nowhere where I live at. I haven't, I haven't seen him, I haven't heard from him. I get a solicitation, hey, please vote for us. But I have not seen him act on anything in my interest. But I make sure I try to vote him out every chance I get. Because he's not doing the things I need for my community. And that's your job as a citizen, an eligible person to vote in your city. You have to vote to make change. If the changes are not here, you vote to take the people out to make the changes for the people you're voting in. Now, where I live at, we have 107,000 citizens. Out of those 107,000 citizens, we have about 70,000 who are eligible to vote. But for a mayor's race, we only had 30,000 people vote. Which is negligible. And keep in mind that our city I live in is 72% African American. Only 32,000 voted. Now keep in mind now in 2016, 97% of the African Americans did vote for Hillary Clinton. The problem was though, there was still... 36% 36% of the registered voters that were African Americans did not vote. So imagine if we, all of us came out and voted. Not just blacks, but whites and Hispanics and Asian Americans. And those are eligible in the country. Voted. Different, a different circumstance could have happened. So the power of your vote can show power... It's, the power of your vote can prove powerful in D.C. or in Atlanta or Tallahassee or Mobile, Alabama or wherever you live to make change that can happen. By voting, you could possibly take out no-not warrants or stand your ground laws or so many different things that could be changed to save lives in, long, in the end game. If they had competent leadership in Kentucky, 
Breonna Taylor will be at work right now. Have competent leadership in Minnesota. George Floyd will be going to work. We had competent leadership in laws. Trayvon Martin should be graduating college and working his job or getting his master's degree right now. But as I said earlier, I'm not a person that's going to push my political agenda or anything like that. I don't have a political agenda. I try to go with the facts and make the best informed choice that's going to be best for me and my family. A bonus take on my final thought. We had a great conversation with John, Steve, and Brian. And one point I want to bring up when I have guests on my show, this is a safe space. This is a space where we have dialogue and give feedback and have a laugh, have a drink while we're talking and try to enlighten some folks the things that we deal with as counselors, especially with this series with with those guys. Um, black African and ma- black male counselors of color in a field that is predominantly female and a field that is predominantly Caucasian. And what have we done or can do to advocate for our role as well so I want to thank those that listen to my podcast also but at the same time this is also my podcast so by going up to somebody and telling them this is not for this is not educational or anything That's not your place to tell me what my podcast is or tell somebody else what that po- their podcast should be. It's not our job to tell you. It's not our job to please you. It's our job to please ourselves and reach those who might need something like this. This is a form of self-care for us. And by you going up to somebody and telling them, I'm not going to, I can't put this on my syllabus, so I can't put this, play this for my, my class. Nobody asked you to. I created this podcast to be an advocate for new and new counselors and veteran counselors and those counselors who might need some assistance and want to hear some different ideas to improve their programs. Or somebody that needs to hear they're going through the same thing. And if you can't be an advocate for anything that we do on this podcast, then kick rocks. Plain and simple. Kid Rocks. Now I want to thank you for listening to my podcast this this week. Um, hopefully we have a new episode next week and we're trying to figure out this rhythm right now, what we're going to do. Thank you for listening. We out. <laughs>